Hello, and welcome back to the Self Healer Soundboard, How to Do the Work Masterclass. Last episode, we explored a more expanded definition of trauma. And this week, we're diving into chapter four, trauma body. We're going to kick off this week's episode with the first page of chapter four. So if you are following along at home in your book, we are on page 65, chapter four, trauma body. The breaking point for me, at least physically, came the day I fainted, passed out cold. I'd been experiencing symptoms of dysregulation for years. Like a game of whack-a-mole, I tried to fix each problem individually when the symptoms became uncomfortable. The dissociation, I thought, was a function of my personality. I have a bad memory. The anxiety was a result of both my genes and my current circumstances, I rationalized to myself. I'm living in New York City on my own. My mom is sick. So I went to a psychiatrist for medication to get me through the rough patches. The headaches were also genetically inherited. The brain fog came from working too hard. I had no clue why I was so constipated. Again, seeing a similar pattern in my mom and sister and not bothering to think too hard about it. Instead, I downed bottles of brewer's yeast and prune juice and numerous over-the-counter medications. It was all individual issues with individual treatments. Nothing was connected. For a long time, those symptoms, the chronic headaches, the digestive issues, the sleep issues, I didn't really think twice about them. I saw them in my family, and I saw them by that point in most of my friends as we entered our 30s. Um, for me, what really scared me was, as you'll read later in the book, those of you who have the book, um, when I started to faint, uh, another really scary moment for me was mid-session, I was in with a client, and for me, my client time was when I was the most present, when I was the most fully there. And in this particular session, I was sharing something with the client in front of me, and quite literally mid-sentence, I forgot what I was saying. Now, listeners out there, I know a lot of us forget what we're saying. I do so quite often, and I can always find something next to say. This particular time, though, Jenna, I couldn't. I couldn't find a word, I couldn't find a thought, and I started to sweat, actually, and I started to be, you know, evidently that there was something wrong, and I spoke to my client about it. I just acknowledged what had happened, forgot what I was saying, I don't know what's going on, and rebooted the session. Underneath it all, though, I will have to admit, I was really scared at that point, because by now, I'm fainting, I'm forgetting my words, I was convinced there must be something wrong in my brain. So I did, I think, what a lot of us do, which is I went online. <laughs> my first <laughs> attempt was to self-diagnose. Okay, what is wrong with me? You know, I've had these memory issues my whole life, now I'm fainting, now I'm forgetting words, maybe there is something seriously going on in my brain. The gift of that panic moment, I should say, is I was met with an entire um, catalog, really, of new research around a particular nerve in our body called the vagus nerve that I had never heard of at this time. And the, the work was done by Dr. Stephen Porges, and it's called polyvagal theory. And the reason why this was so important for me was I began to understand what was going on in my physiological body. Because what I learned is that we have a very main nerve, it's called the vagus nerve. It connects our brainstem to literally all of the organs in our body. And it is that nerve that gets activated when we have a stress response. So what is a stress response? Essentially a stress response is when we perceive, our brain perceives that we don't have adequate resources to deal with whatever's in front of us, whatever's happening. So a lot of listeners probably are familiar with something called the fight or flight response. And it's the vagus nerve which really activates us. It activates us into that fight or flight state. What I didn't know 
was about that third state, that freeze. And what I came to find out is my fainting, my forgetting my words mid-sentence, for me, that was the embodiment of that freeze. That was actually my nervous system shutting down, which for me was an accumulation of 30 plus years of stress, of that overwhelm, was by that point in my life resulting in that complete shutdown or that freeze response. This freeze or fight or flight response that Nicole is speaking of is activated by our vagus nerve, which connects all of the organs in our body from our gut to our brain. So you may notice this physically showing up in your body in these moments of stress response as your heart beating really fast, maybe your palms getting sweaty, or your lungs quickly filling with breath or with air. Um, it's why our bodies are affected sometimes in losing consciousness in our response to stress. So to give maybe a relatable example, it's which also I was just sharing is occurring to me now. As I'm speaking, so I can feel my palms getting super sweaty and my heart racing. And you know when you speak in front of crowds, if, if you ever have been in front of a crowd speaking, where you feel like you kind of black out or you say something, you're in a difficult or uncomfortable situation or phone call, you're describing something for me personally here even in this podcast. We record these podcasts and then afterwards it feels like I've blacked out. I don't remember even what was said or what happened. And it's in this moment I'm noticing, I can feel literally my heart beginning to beat faster, my palms beginning to get sweaty. So this is my vagus nerve activating this stress response in my body within those organs that then are showing up on a in a physical way, either inside my body or like the palms of my hands externally, like the sweat. Thank you for sharing that, Jen. And I think that's definitely a relatable example. Um, I notice often when my body is changing and typically it's because I'm perceiving a stress. Um, it's not only that we're perceiving it, what we're perceiving is an inability to deal with the stress. And that again comes from, from very early on when we weren't able to deal with the stress. But before we get there, I think it's really important to acknowledge all of the physical and emotional um, byproducts of this chronic stress. There's actually a field that is called psychoneuroimmunology, so a very, very long word, though essentially it's just the study of how chronic stress, so long-term stress, causes long-term damage to our brains and our bodies. Research has linked heart disease, autoimmune disease, adrenal fatigue, anxiety, depression, and many, many other symptoms to this chronic stress. So it affects us, it impacts our bodies, it impacts our minds, it also impacts our subconscious mind. So those of you who have been following along, reading the book, listening to this masterclass, now know, hopefully, how powerful our subconscious mind is. And what often is stored in there are neural networks, habits and patterns, our habitual ways of dealing with, here you go, our stress. So not only does stress impact our bodies, for many of us, it becomes our baseline. It's our familiar go-to. We fall into that fight, flight, or freeze response quite habitually, and we become familiar in that space. So here's that word again, for anyone who's tuned into an earlier episode, knows that we've been exploring how powerful that familiar space is, how much we desire to be in that familiar as opposed to being in the unknown. So we develop an emotional addiction where our brains and our bodies quite literally begin to crave those familiar stress response and habitual coping patterns. 
as someone like myself who grew up in a family of a lot of addiction, I really appreciate and value the power that just this language and this concept of emotional addiction really gives to everyone at large, where it's taking the stigma away from, you know, addiction here, we're not just talking about drugs and alcohol or something that seems unworkable or harmful in someone's life. And instead, we're talking about an emotional addiction or that hit that that comfort that you do continuously continue to crave and to subconsciously go back for and search for. We're all addicted to our phones, to this kind of instant gratification and communication. We're addicted to electronics, to maybe gambling, to certain foods. So all throughout the day on a very micro and macro level, as humans and society at large, we are always cycling through an addiction. So this language and the concept of emotional addiction, I believe really gives us a, a better and more neutral understanding and acceptance of something that we are already experiencing. So for me, this emotional addiction, if you've ever been in a hospital or had an IV, it is like a steady, constant drip of cortisol for me. So I imagine myself with an IV of fluids in my arm, that being cortisol, just consistently, slowly, all day being dripped through me, which is that cycle of emotional addiction. Whatever behavior or pattern or relationship it's pertaining to, I'm constantly going back to crave the comfort of it. Because for me, that's, you know, I grew up in that chaos. I grew up in that kind of environment where all of those things or that, that high of that emotion regardless of the outcome, was familiar. So I'd find my body going back into craving this, going back into what it perceived as its comfort, as its calm. So very similar to, to your experience, Jenna. Stress, chaos was very much my emotional addiction as well. Just to be clear for listeners out there, this could include sadness. It, mm -hmm. it can include anger. It can, and it can include whatever that kind of baseline emotion that we consistently cycle through maybe. And I know many of us have had the well-meaning family members, friends, looking over our shoulder, witnessing us cycling through these patterns that don't serve us, wondering why the heck are we still living these cycles? And so to speak to your point, for a lot of us, when we meet this concept, we can relieve ourselves of a lot of shame, a lot of you know narratives that we entertain around we're broken, why are we doing this? We can't seem to understand. And when we understand the power, again, of our subconscious, the pull that it has for all of us humans back to that familiar baseline, also acknowledging the impact that things like stress and our hormones and our emotions have on our bodies and minds, we can now begin to understand why some of us are stuck living patterns that no longer serve us. So sharing my example, I used to live this in what I call the micro sense. And if you have spoken to me pretty much my entire life, I like to joke and say I'm a hippie at heart. All I would have been professing is this deep desire for peace, for calm. That's all I wanted in my life. However, flash forward to perhaps a Sunday. Uh, maybe I was alone. Maybe my partner was around and I had nothing going on. One might say I was living a stress-free day. However, what I would notice pretty consistently, I would tune into some, I, would, I call it an agitation. I would either feel it in my body where I would feel like I can't actually sit on that couch like maybe my plan was for the day. And before you know it, I am tearing around my house on that Sunday cleaning or doing the laundry. I actually couldn't sit still. 
Another thing that I would witness, and this is a little bit more of the embarrassing one, is maybe I wouldn't tick around my apartment like I describe. Maybe I would agitate. Maybe if there was my partner there with me or a friend, maybe this is the moment where I would call to mind some annoying thing they said that morning or some you know issue that I wanted to bring up. Before I knew it, again, this similar ticking, as I call it, would result in now an argument, a conflict. Before I know it, in either example, I was right back living some stress response, despite right, very logically claiming all I want is peace. And I share this example often because I know a lot of us who have an emotional addiction, who came from childhoods that are filled with chaos, we actually can't sit still. We, we feel like we're crawling out of our minds and crawling out of our bodies, and we are driven to create that same stress in our environment. It's a really important thing to know. I, As you're speaking just here, the comfort that I personally find in chaos and was thinking even just of yesterday. So the last, this past weekend, I went home to where I'm from in New York and I saw my mother and my brothers. And if you've listened to some of these past episodes, you've learned a little bit about my past family dynamics and going back there is sort of like catapulting into a different life. It was really great to see them. It's been, you know, what feels like decades of work now to get to a place of, of communication and to really share each other's space. And in that, I circle back to that comfort that I find in chaos where there are a lot of stressors. There is, you know, a lot of variables, a lot of moving pieces. The life I've created now that has created stability and more calm definitely comes from this erraticness. So when I go home, I visit that a little bit. And while I've been getting good into a practice of allowing myself to simply be or schedule time, you know, away from working or creating, I noticed just yesterday after getting back, really needing to take a day to to relax and allow my body to just come back into balance. And while that's something that I've been getting a lot better at allowing myself to do, I was extremely agitated all day yesterday and, you know, still took the day, but constantly had to coach myself from sunup to sundown. Like, it's okay. You're allowed to lay on the bed. You're allowed to lay on the couch. You're allowed to lounge. You're allowed to rest. And I'm thinking just as you're sharing, Nicole, wondering if that too is part of the experience of being back in New York. I kind of got a hit of that past chaos. So for me, a little bit or you know, a lot of it, my whole physical self actually went back to the same time and place of that comfort and that chaos of that instability. And while it doesn't doesn't necessarily work for me, it doesn't work for my life anymore. It also for a lot of years served as my comfort. It was my baseline. It's what I retreated back to. So I can even just notice reflecting on yesterday, kind of wanting to being in this unfamiliar place of just peace and relaxation back here in California and almost craving to go back to that instability, kind of like a little kid who misses their teddy bear because there's a longing for it and almost a love for it because it is the thing that I knew as, as I was growing up and being created. I appreciate you sharing that. And very similarly, um, those of you who tuned into a previous episode heard me speak about uh, my family and a lot of the stress cycles in my family, particularly are around health, health-related concerns. So very similarly, I have you know an active health issue happening with my mom in my family. Um, and I'm finding myself similarly challenged, you know, being conscious and seeing that old pull to jump right in the stress right there with them, mm -hmm. um, to be there, you know, kind of as activated as they are. And what I've learned is, and again, similarly, after doing a lot of work, um, I've, I'm 
gifting myself now with, yes, of course I'm stressed out when my mom is struggling with her health. However, I've learned how to separate myself from that pull. Learn and see it there, witness it in the moments, because I think that's the reality for many of us. It doesn't go away. Um, I can find that very attractive, just like Jenna, to jump right in that stress, to be just as activated as everyone else around me. I've, however, learned um, that I think we can provide the support for the people around us who are stressed when we're not um, knee deep in that stress response right there with them. Which brings us to um, where all this develops, right? And when we are children, as all things really begin in our childhood, and the reason being when we're talking about our emotional addiction or how we tolerate stress and our feelings and what our habitual coping patterns are, all of these originate in childhood for a very specific, one of many reasons, but one reason being because we're so dependent. The human infant, when we're born, we need others. So you'll probably have heard people speak, we're wired to connect, we're interpersonal creatures. And that really does, it's in our bones in terms of our evolution. Because as a human infant, we can't sustain life. We can't keep ourselves alive. We need a caregiver to feed us. We also need a caregiver to help us regulate our nervous system or our stress response. And it's through a process that's called co-regulation, where ideally we have a human, a nervous system that's able to be in a calm, receptive baseline state so that when we as an infant become distressed, we're hungry, we're crying, we're uncomfortable, we can, our activated nervous system can actually be brought back into that calm, balanced mode, that response through someone else's nervous system. Now, of course, I'll just use myself again as, as an example. Growing up in my home, there was a lot of dysregulation around me. There wasn't a nervous system that was able to come back from its fight or flight into a baseline. So stress was rampant. And when one person became stressed, in my family at least, everyone became stressed. There was no safe point. Um, one of my family mantras that I like to bring up because it really does apply to this conversation is always something. So not only did, did all of us become stressed, we actually became stressed around a variety of reasons from anything like a very real health concern to something that's, that's sm far more minor, like the neighbors are upset or the trash didn't come. And what happens again is when one person becomes activated, we all become activated and none of us were able to restabilize. Our nervous systems were stuck, as many of us as are, in a state of dysregulation. If our nervous systems are stuck in a state of dysregulation and the nervous systems of those all around us, like our family or our caretakers, whoever's near, are also stuck in a state of dysregulation, then it's really understandable that our belief eventually becomes that the world is a threatening place. We're constantly in this dysregulation and there isn't another person, another caretaker, another nurturer to co-regulate with, to bring our nervous systems back into balance with, because in those moments when we're all in a state of dysregulation, our balance with that other person is actually in that state of dysregulation. Um, the contrast of this I saw, I was just sharing yesterday actually, I remembered a moment in childhood hanging off of my dad's shoulder, which was very rare and far and few between. I don't remember seeing him all that much or really ever being 
taken care of in that sort of nurturing physical touch way because there was a lot of absence of my parents. And this moment was really special and just came as a ping yesterday in this day of, you know, really trying to allow myself just to rest of this immediate comfort and image of pretending to be, you know, kind of asleep, but pretending to be fully asleep, hanging off of my dad's shoulder, probably being picked up out of the car to go to bed. And I can imagine from my parents' perspective, of course, I know that they did love me and really didn't want me to wake up. It's probably better for everyone if the sleeping <laughs> child transfers sleeping from the car into sleeping in bed. It's just more peaceful and workable for everyone. So in that moment, I remember just dangling off him and sleeping, being so comforted and so comfortable. And the contrast here is we're talking about this co-regulation or lack of co-regulation when you are around a lot of um, instability or destabilized nervous systems was that I think in that moment, there must have been something that did feel regulated. My body against his or my heart against his in that moment of peace and sleeping, that probably was my nervous system going back to this sort of homeostasis and this peace of mind. Um, so the contrast of just that one moment in snippet is so powerful and easy for me to view because it there was a large lack of that in most of the other times where there was that chaos, that instability, a lot of sickness around. So it was a constant destabilizing environment, which allowed then the contrast and those pings of of that comfort when it did happen to really show themselves. I love what you're describing here, too, because you're highlighting something else that's really important, which is, you know, so you're describing examples where there were evident things. Mm -hmm. There was neglect. There was, you know, big emotions that were overwhelming for you in childhood, Jenna. Even myself, right? There were moments where there were health concerns. There was big stress. So even listeners out there who don't have those those moments to say, yes, this happened, something that you were you were explaining was a function of our nervous system, which means sometimes it doesn't even have to be evident to us because our nervous system is operating outside of our awareness, unconsciously, for lack of a better word. And it's through a process that we call neuroception, where we're constantly, our nervous system, again, outside of our awareness, is constantly scanning our environment. So even in absence of those big things, if we have caregivers, which a lot of us do, that are not stabilized in their nervous system, we are getting the cues, we're feeling it, we're perceiving it, our nervous systems are at least. So when we say we're social creatures, we really are attuned at all of these different levels. Yes, we're seeing what's objectively happening to us. And a lot of us can say, wow, that's overwhelming and my feeling is really big and I don't have that safe place to go. And some of us don't have those big objective things. However, we're feeling, we're feeling the destabilization in the nervous systems of those around us. And very similarly, we're starting that snowball down again, where all of us are sending out these pings or these messages of threat, of lacking safety, and are continuing to activate the nervous systems of all of those around us. Now think about even where this applies in the macro. Now we're not even talking about how we affect our partners or our family. We're talking about how our nervous systems are communicating to the world at large. When we go into that grocery store and we're feeling unsafe or we're feeling threatened because we had a fight that morning with our loved one, we're carrying that messaging. We're sending out the signals to even the stranger behind us in the grocery store. That's, I think, really powerful, especially, of course, with all things that are, you know, 2020 and happening in the world. And a lot of us are living with these threat-based trauma body responses that are impacting the world around us. 
So if all of this is impacting the world around us and how we are interacting with the world around us, we essentially have a bunch of humans that are now walking around in this fear of the world is a threatening place. So if we're all walking around in sort of this response and this lack of co-regulation, how do we bring ourselves back into balance? So to bring ourselves into balance, we need to begin to practice new tools really aimed at bringing our bodies right back into physiological, bringing our minds back into psychological balance, learning new ways to cope with stress or any of our other emotional experiences that we have as humans. Um, it's incredibly important. One of the major reasons why we created the Self Healers hashtag and now the Self Healers Circle is to provide the opportunity to find safe, supportive relationships. That's one of the major ways. Because we are social creatures, we heal in relationship. And for a large majority of us, we don't have those safe relationships in our external lives or in our current lives now where we're living. So we need to cultivate and find supportive resources. It's incredibly helpful to develop some new tools, some better ways to self-soothe or to self-regulate. In future episodes, we're gonna dive deeper into both of those concepts when we talk about reparenting, when we talk about emotional maturity. How can I develop new tools to regulate my stress response? And then of course, at the foundation of all of this is how do I regulate my nervous system? How do I become someone who's safe? How do I shift from fight, flight, or freeze back in to that open social engagement mode where I can be receptive and safe and connective to other people? Is for many of us, this can be relieving, really understanding that these symptoms are symptoms of a dysregulated nervous system can help us shift into more empowerment. Now I don't have to imagine myself to be a victim of my genes or my genetics. I don't have social anxiety because my mom had it. I have social anxiety because my nervous system is activated, is in that chronic state of activation. So for many of us listening, that first step, that bearing witness, that seeing right where these social, these emotional, these physical symptoms map on to our actual states of dysregulation can provide us relief from sometimes a lifetime of shame. Now, this also really highlights the importance of, I think it was what, chapter one? when we talked about the importance of building a foundation of consciousness. Because there may be some of you out there listening that have no idea what your body is saying, have, no, have never felt your heart rate increase, don't really even know what the natural flow of your breath is. So many of us are so disconnected, so unconscious to our physical bodies that that's why chapter one was the conscious self. So I urge anyone who's you know unsure about what, what your symptoms are. Is my body even speaking? I don't feel anything. Perhaps you're locked away on your spaceship like I was. Again, really highlighting the importance of building that foundational practice of consciousness so that we can bear witness. We can see where these symptoms of nervous system activation map on. And then of course that builds the foundation for the second part of the daily consistent practice now of bringing our body consistently back into balance. This is where all of the conversations that Jen and I have here on this podcast with you in the circle with all of our members about the importance of daily practice. Understanding that many of us have all of those neural pathways of that emotional addiction stored as our familiar baseline. So as we even take a step forth into grounding ourselves in nature, there might be discomfort 
It likely will feel unfamiliar and uncomfortable. That's that resistance trying to keep you in that stress response. Even more important in those moments is it to stay committed to those promises, to teach, literally teach your body and your nervous system how to embody that rest and digest, that calm, receptive space where our bodies are in balance and when we're open to the world around us. It takes that consistent practice and it won't be comfortable because many of us aren't comfortable in that baseline. We've learned a comfort in stress, in sadness, in anger, or in any other emotional experience in which we find ourselves stuck. Consistent practice. And another thing to note here is that voice of that compassionate, wise inner parent, where for many of us who have spent an entire lifetime in this dysregulated body, any of these changes and practices that we're putting into place are not going to change or transform something overnight. They will take time. They are a gradual journey. You've heard us refer before to, you know, our healing is a muscle. Our consciousness is a muscle. So also along this way in this consistent practice, while that critic and that judge is still always going to be there, how much mind you pay it is is to your choosing and with practice over time, you can sort of push that judgmental voice away and allow that voice and really cultivate the voice of your wise inner parent, of being gentle, of being encouraging to yourself as you put these small daily things into practice consistently over time, understanding that it's a lifetime likely for many of us in a dysregulated body that we're now embarking on a journey of healing or have been on one. So this is a journey forward that is going to take some time for this change and transformation. Yes, absolutely. So thank you for that reminder. And speaking of journeys, we're going to shift into our Q&A portion. And first, we're going to hear from Monica, who has a question about her healing journey from her own trauma body experience. Hi, my name is Monica, and I am actually in Ensenada, Baja, California. And my question is, how can I rewire my trauma body um, that I've experienced such prolonged deprivation and scarcity? How do I rewire that so that I can become accustomed to receiving and having I've already made some pretty good changes in my life, um, but there's still some areas where receiving and having um, is just, it's very difficult for me. So I'd love your insights on that. Thank you so much. Thank you, Monica, for your question. Uh, Monica's question here really highlights a general or overall feeling of scarcity that a lot of us experience, um, which is a threat-based response that often originates, again, in childhood when our needs weren't consistently met. You hear in Monica's question her mention deprivation, right? So when I hear deprivation, my mind goes to the likely reality that probably quite consistently Monica's, maybe it was physical needs, perhaps emotional or spiritual, the needs of the spiritual self to be in self-expression. It doesn't sound that Monica had the safe environment to have those needs consistently met. And what happens when that is the case, as it is the case for a lot of us, again, our nervous system becomes activated, quite consistently activated. And we embody an overall kind of threat-based view of life, um, one that when we hear words like scarcity, often go, we speak interchangeably. And when we don't have our needs consistently met, 
we find ourselves consistently feeling threatened or feeling unsafe and again in a state of nervous system activation. Here it's so incredibly important. So first I want to acknowledge Monica and anyone else that out there listening that can identify these patterns around deprivation, around scarcity. Now we can begin to use this language around our nervous system. In those moments, maybe even quite consistently for those like Monica out there, we likely feel consistently unsafe. Speaking to the importance of cultivating that safety in the body, everything Jenna just very beautifully read out, learning how to ground ourselves in the present moment, learning how to create safety, shifting from threat into that open rest and digest, that safe space where we can begin to connect. Part two of this is identifying the ways that we're continuing not to meet our needs. Some of us become so habitual that we can't even identify the fact that we have physical needs or that we have emotional needs. We've become so used to living in that deprivation or in that scarcity that we continue to repress or to leave our needs unacknowledged and therefore unmet. So again, here becomes the daily practice of creating new habits where some of us that means learning how to identify our needs. I remember for me, once I landed my spaceship, I had no idea how to tell when my body needed something from hunger to sleep. I didn't really know its cues. Emotionally, I might as well have dove in the deep end. I had no idea how to begin to navigate my emotions. All I knew was how to go on my spaceship, was how to distance myself, was how to essentially tune it out. So I had a lot of learning to do. And I share that if you're like Monica, if you're living in stress cycles that are keeping you in that scarcity or in that deprivation, it's so important to begin to acknowledge our needs. When we create safety in our nervous system, we become receptive. When, when Monica asked, how do I become receptive to receiving the environment? To be receptive, our nervous system has to be fully safe to be open to the experiences. And when we're unsafe, when we're living in our threat cycles, we're closed, we actually can't receive. So shifting our body into that state of open receptivity, in addition to creating new habits where our needs can begin to get met, we can begin to feel worthy to meet our needs, and we can shift out of scarcity and deprivation into fullness. So one example that I'll share um, where I see scarcity evident in my own life is particularly around food. So again, coming from a childhood where my needs largely went unmet, my whole family was cycling through our stress, dealing with the fire, right? the always something. In the process of that, quite often, the needs of my physical, my emotional, my spiritual self wet unmet. So very similar to Monica, I developed this kind of global sense of scarcity where because of the practice of having my needs unmet for so long, I did have that stance toward the world. I did come to believe that my needs weren't worthy of being met. Of course, as I began to create change, as I began to identify the needs of all of myself, one area where I saw this, this scarcity, this, this older narrative continue to play out and still does in moments for me is around food, where for whatever reason, I have this idea that food is scarce in my life, especially food that I like. So if I have my heart set on getting home and in my fridge seeing, say, or in my freezer seeing ice cream, I happen to like ice cream. And for whatever reason, I come home and the ice cream's not there. Someone else ate the ice cream. I go into a state of activation. I get very upset 
by this. And when I came to realize for me, it is in this deep rooted idea that there's not enough and that I'm unsafe in some reason when there's not enough immediately available to me. Now, of course, I have the privilege and the opportunity to have food readily available to me. However, it's in those small moments where for whatever reason, my half isn't visible to me in that moment. I really do react. I almost shift into the state of activation and threat. And for me, again, that's a remnant of what was a very consistent state I lived in. Um, as we heal, of course, my new consistent state has become much more of a baseline, yet there are still those moments. So for me, my moment still comes up around food for whatever reason. I love the way you said that too, in that moment around food, you are shifting into that activation, which makes me think of our emotional addiction that we spoke on earlier, where in those moments of that, you know, for you, it's scarcity around food. For me, it's, it's, we've talked before about experiencing joy or an inability to experience joy. Well, there are moments that are so joyful for me often that I find myself go into panic mode that the, the moment's going to end soon. So instead of being present in the moment and enjoying what is actually happening in this experience, I'm already in this activation, in this dysregulation and in this panic that the moment's going to end, which is this scarcity. So in, instead of actually wanting and cultivating this joy, what's actually happening on a deeper level for me subconsciously is that I'm so used to this lifetime of this activation in response to joy that I'm actually subconsciously seeking that same thing. I'm not seeking the joy itself. I'm seeking the lack thereof joy, which then puts me into this emotional addiction to then panic to, you know, something feels really good. Well, no, that's too new. That's actually not stable for me. What my stability was, was the chaos, was the instability of it. So when a moment of stability comes, that for me is an activation in itself. So the scarcity for me actually comes into play when the thing that's been missing is here because it's the missingness of it, if that makes sense, that is the thing that actually did help me regulate before. So you'll notice in these moments where you're shifting into that scarcity mode, into that reactivity around, you know, oh, someone ate my ice cream, it's not here, or this panic of this moment feels too beautiful, it's of course it's going to end. Those are all moments where I'm then just shifting back into dysregulation and into panic and getting that hit of emotional addiction, again, with that steady drip of cortisol, because for 34 years of my life, we'll say, or 30 at least years, that that steady drip of cortisol, that dysregulation, that instability was my home. It was my safety in a lot of ways. So again, with these, you mentioned, Monica, you know, you've been putting this into practice. You've noticed being able to experience more stability in your trauma body. And we'll again repeat that this, this is a consistent lifelong journey of small daily practices. So if you're at this stage, like Nicole said, which we really acknowledge being able to even witness that experience or that change and that healing happening in your body also shows that whatever tools and practices you're using or putting into place are having an impact and are having an effect and to stick with them consistently. 
Absolutely. And thank you for sharing your experience. Thank you, Monica, for your question. Um, everyone out there listening, you know, to be clear there for a lot of us, we do embody this general state of scarcity mm -hmm. of deprivation. And again, for a lot of us, this looks like continuing to live with our needs unmet and continuing to live with a constant state of nervous system activation. Speaking of these more acute moments, we have a question coming in from Heather, who's talking a little bit about her own witnessing of a trauma reaction, again, in these more specific moments. Hi, Dr. Nicole and Jenna. Um, thanks for giving me the opportunity to ask a quick question. Um, my name's Heather. I am from Idaho. And my question is around um, building trust with your body. Um, I've been experiencing trauma bodies for most of my adult life, and it really cul culminated um, last year when I had a really horrific panic attack on the freeway while driving my daughter to volleyball practice. Um, I And since then, I have felt on the verge of panic um, most of the time when I drive my children. When I drive with myself, I'm totally fine. Um, but when I drive with my kids, I feel dizzy, almost like I want to pass out. Logically, I know that there's nothing to be afraid of. I've been driving for, you know, 15 years. There's, there's really nothing to be afraid of. But my question is, how do I begin to build the trust with myself and trust my body? I mean, I know we talk a lot about trusting ourselves, keeping our promises to ourselves, but how do we build trust with our body that, that our body will keep us safe? Um, I hope that makes sense. But thank you so much for your time. Um, have a great day. Bye. So Heather's question Heather's question is about panic. Uh, those of us who had panic attacks know how nightmarish they can be. Um, panic really colored the entirety of my 20s, really. Um, feeling that out of control, those of you who read the book will even read me share one instance where even though I was very aware that panic attacks very much mimic heart attack symptoms, there was one night where I was dressed and ready to take myself to the ER because I was convinced there had to be something wrong with my body. So I just want to send compassion out there to all of you souls like Heather who have ever experienced a panic attack. It can be incredibly destabilizing and incredibly scary, downright scary. So panic, you know, very much maps onto the conversation we're having. When we're having those symptoms of panic, our nervous system is a, in a complete state of overwhelm and we are struggling to regain that balance. You can even see it in the symptoms of panic. Our heart rate goes up as we've been exploring the vagus nerve, right? The, the vagus nerve wraps around our heart. So our heart rate goes up, our bellies might constrict, we might start to breathe very shallowly. Again, all of this is really evidencing that activation of our vagus nerve. So Heather's question is specifically about rebuilding self-trust. Anyone who's been overwhelmed with panic knows that one of the first things to go out the window is that self-trust. Because here we've lived the experiences of having a feeling that was too big, that was too overwhelming. The more we have those experiences, the more we begin to entertain a narrative about ourselves that we can't handle this because we haven't been. So what we want to begin to do is practice, as we say, widening the window of tolerance. We don't want to, like Jenna mentioned earlier, dive into the deep end. We don't want to overwhelm an already overwhelmed nervous system. We want to very gently and very gradually begin to show ourselves, begin to show our body that we can tolerate slightly more stress more and more stress and bring our body back into baseline. So this is probably where Heather and others listening 
We're not going to practice, definitely not while we're driving a car. We're probably not going to practice these body grounding tools that Jenna mentioned earlier in the moment of acute panic. This is where we want to practice in other moments when we're experiencing much lesser of a degree of stress. We want to learn how to notice when our body is beginning to, to activate into that stress response so that before we get to that point of no return and we're, when we're in full-blown panic, we can begin to use some of these tools. That's how we widen that window of tolerance. And not only are we taking ourselves now through the exercise of having a stress response and bringing our bodies back into that state of rest and digest, we're doing something even more important behind the scenes psychologically. We're empowering ourselves. We're beginning to rebuild that self-trust that was lost so that over time, we can begin to confidently then walk into those experiences, get into that car where we know the anxiety could be much higher, the panic could even be present, and we can set ourselves up to succeed, to confidently know that I can down-regulate any degree of a stress response as it's happening. And again, just to be clear, that doesn't happen overnight. Those listening that have those moments of acute panic, whether it's in the car, in the grocery store, the next time you have to give a speech, don't expect to practice in that moment and to do so successfully. This is where we want to drop in, tune in, and learn how to rebuild that self-confidence that I can begin to regulate my body and its nervous system before I put myself into that moment of overwhelm. Heather, your question is specifically about rebuilding or creating that trust with your body in particular. So in order to build that self-trust or cultivate that self-trust with your body, you must first understand and know your body. You have to treat your body well. So we, mo we must then understand the general foundation of resources that our body needs. We need food, right? We need shelter. We need water. So understanding in what areas we are depleted and then how that shows up. If we have a body that's running on empty and has a lack of resources, we're then already signaling to our body that it's not deserving enough or priority enough even for us to cater to filling up its cup. So to now tell or teach a body that spent probably a majority of a lifetime in dysregulation, to teach it and allow it to accept that you are there to trust it and to love it is to first recognize those needs, recognize its physical, emotional, social needs to first fulfill on those and then begin to instill the practice of these small daily promises, which is why you can combine them and do a two for one, even that small daily promise of drinking a glass of water first thing when you wake up every morning. You're committing to a promise to yourself. So you're keeping a small promise and you can set yourself up for success the night before. I know to some this may sound so minute, but putting that glass of water next to your bed. So it's already right there for you in the morning. So then first thing in the morning, you're fulfilling on this small promise that you've promised to yourself. You're building that self-trust and you're also building this physical trust that you're telling your body, I'm caring for you. I love you. You're hydrating it first thing. You're giving it water to clean out its system first thing in the morning. So in that way, your higher self is fulfilling your psychological needs and that commitment to rewire and heal this trauma body, you're also telling your physical body that it's being cared for, it's being looked out for. 
so many of us end up in that state of overwhelm, like we talked about earlier, because our needs were mm. consistently unmet. We end up living with chronically activated nervous systems because we aren't taking the moment to, to speak to Jenna's point, to honor our body and whatever its ever-changing needs might be. So, so important. Thank you for that reminder, Jenna, that a lot of the foundational work that we're talking about here begins with those daily practices of showing up in a new way in more full service of our needs and for the conversation here, because trauma does live in the body, particularly around our nervous system and its stages of activation, we're going to want to make sure that our bodies are as cared for as possible. And I know so many of us out there aren't sleeping, aren't getting the nutrients that we need. And our body's ability to deal with stress really does map onto how satisfied is our body? How many of the resources energetically do we have available to us. And so for many of us, that does mean beginning to build in these new small daily promises where I honor my needs, where I identify what they may or may not be, and where I begin to now show up in action in service of restabilizing my body as a whole. Again, not just in those moments where I know my nervous system is activated. We want to set our bodies foundationally up to have its needs met. So speaking about small daily promises, we have a final question coming in from Dawn. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Nicole. I'm Dawn. I'm calling from Chicago, Illinois. So early in the book, Nicole, you introduced the idea of small and steady wins the race, so to speak, in terms of the small changes that we promised to ourselves at the beginning of our healing journey. And I can attest to the fact that Changing 10 things at once in cold turkey is not effective, at least for me. So my question is, how do I sit with the discomfort of only making small and consistent steps? Um, I tend to have this all or nothing thinking and I get overwhelmed at the idea of realizing that I can't change all of these underlying traumas or unaddressed traumas all at once. Thank you for your question, Dawn. And I first want to acknowledge how understandable it is for anyone else out there who has a similar question to Dawn or a similar desire right, to get in, unearth the trauma, and feel better. I want to compassionately understand where that's coming from. When we're uncomfortable, the more conscious we become to our discomfort, the more aware we are of maybe the habits and patterns that are no longer serving us, the more quickly we want to change. It's, it's natural and human. So compassion to ourselves if you do have that all or nothing, if you do want tomorrow to be different from top to bottom, understanding that it's coming from the it's coming from the discomfort that you're feeling. However, speaking of discomfort, discomfort will be part of change. The more we pile on things, like Dawn asked, right? Changing 10 things at once and cold turkey is not effective for me. It's not effective for any of us out there because it overwhelms our nervous system, right? We want to set ourselves up to empower ourselves when we're working with our body, to empower ourselves when we're working to create change at the level of our nervous system. We don't want to jump right back into the deep end of overwhelm, which for many of us was where our symptoms began, was where the habits and patterns that don't serve us originated. So we want to do so slowly and gently. 
We want to practice keeping those small daily promises. We want to acknowledge if that critical all or nothing voice shows its head and begins to tear ourselves down for not doing enough or maybe roll its eyes. I always make a joke. Our subconscious is rolling its eyes, right, as we're showing up as we are, always tearing us down, always trying to keep us in those familiar so expect the discomfort, expect that critical voice. Here's where we get choice. We don't have to listen to it. We don't have to spend our attention or our time engaging with it. We can acknowledge its presence and then we can refocus our attention onto what we are going to do in that moment. What promise are we keeping and how do we feel about it? And then on the back end, we want to begin to acknowledge ourselves, begin to notice and celebrate every one of those promises we kept, every moment we were able to show ourselves alignment between intention and action. We want to acknowledge and celebrate it and over time be open and receptive to the changes that will accumulate. They won't happen overnight. We're not going to keep one small promise for the next seven days and feel drastically different. However, 20 days, three months from now, you will begin to see the results of these promises. So notice. So notice so that next time when that resistance is there, as it will be for Dawn, as it will be for me, as it will be for Jenna and anyone else listening, expect it, anticipate it, empower yourself that you don't have to listen to it or pay attention and you get to choose and then notice the results of your choices. That's going to continue to empower you to keep future small daily promises to continue to create that change. I love this idea of expecting it and so that we're not getting blindsided, right? We're not getting derailed. We're expecting it so we know that it's coming. And I think in conjunction with expecting it is also to allow room to accept it. So we're expecting it and we're also accepting it because if I'm expecting this discomfort and I've got no room for it, up here in the driver's seat or the passenger seat, and I'm just resisting it and pushing it away, still knowing it's there, but wanting to resist it and not just allowing or accepting it, I'm then actually doing myself a disservice and I'm instead creating more of it. I'm creating more of this discomfort that's now showing up in the resistance of the discomfort itself. So in that moment of knowing it's there, like we're talking about healing, change, transformation, all of these things then cause or result discomfort in some way, which can be reframed to just it's causing newness in some way. That discomfort usually is a result of something new. We're introducing a new practice. We're introducing a new balance to our nervous system, that stability, that balance, that homeostasis. For many of us who are dealing with this trauma body and this anxiety and this stress response, that calm and that peace of mind, that regulated nervous system is new. So that calmness is actually the discomfort itself. So now we're expecting it to be there. We're accepting that it's there. And I really just want to reiterate again, Nicole, that acknowledgement of the moments that you are keeping that small promise. So you are expecting this discomfort. You're now accepting that it's there. Oh, and you still followed through on this small daily promise. You still followed through on this small commitment to yourself. Um, I know for me, for quite a while, I would keep a notebook or just a running like shopping list, even in the kitchen, of 
just random moments or bullet points throughout the day where I did follow through on something for myself. A friend of mine has a really successful coaching practice. It's really impactful. And one of the tools he uses is reference points. So he takes all of his clients through building these reference points throughout the day where you have committed to something, you have committed to this small promise, and you followed through for yourself. So it's a little mini celebration. You could stop and do a little happy dance if you wanted, mm -hmm. or you could simply, like me, who struggles with joy and excitement, could just put it down on a notepad. Really to look back later before I'd go to sleep, I'd then go over throughout the day and I'd embody and spend a moment reflecting back on all those reference points throughout the day where I did follow through, where I did teach myself that I can cultivate that trust. And in doing so, I'm creating new memory, creating new responses to what it actually feels like, what my actual experience is when I do fulfill on that. So when I actually then become this person that I'm creating being, there are times throughout your day where Small things like that do happen. So take note of them. Acknowledge yourself for them. Don't beat them up when they're not there. Remember, you're expecting that there will be discomfort. And Dawn, in your question, you specifically said, um, how do I sit with this discomfort of only making small and consistent steps? And as soon as I heard it, I just you know, put a period in there of how do I sit with this discomfort period? Because the discomfort that you're sitting with for only making small and consistent steps is the same discomfort in any newness of any new practice or tool or concept that we're experiencing on our journey. Absolutely. And and the the reality for many of us is is we struggle to tolerate discomfort. We've become so good at distracting ourselves, at numbing ourselves, at coping with it in all of the ways that we cope with it. That's not really dealing with it. That's not really being present to it. We're in a society now where immediacy, you know, is our best friend and we have immediate access to all of those distraction points. So learning how to be with that which is uncomfortable as we become more conscious, we have more that we're witness to in terms of that which is uncomfortable or causing discomfort, and it is part of the journey. Though to be clear, this doesn't mean we're diving into a deep end. We don't want to overwhelm our already overwhelmed nervous system. We want to widen the window. We want to develop that emotional resilience that many of us don't have. We want to learn how to be present when we're experiencing this discomfort and begin to make new choices now in that present state. And to be clear, we want to make sure that our bodies are balanced so that we can do this. So many of us who are resonating with this concept of trauma body, who have shaking their head when Jenna was reading those symptoms earlier of living with an overactivated nervous system, probably the big takeaway here is going to be for each of you that my body is dysregulated. Maybe that can be relieving, relieving the shame that you've been carrying with you. And now the next step is to rebalance that body. On next episode, we're gonna be diving into chapter five, mind-body healing practices to talk about that. What are now the consistent practices we can begin to embody so that our body can have its resources available, so that we can set our nervous system up to feel safe enough to fall back into that open realm of social engagement so that we can be present to the world around us, so that we can experience it through our senses and so that we can experience it through our relationships with others. 
Today, we've really just cracked the surface of the trauma that we experience living inside our bodies. And next week, we'll take a deeper dive into chapter five, mind-body healing practices. So if you'd like to have your question played and answered live on our podcast, you can call the number below on your screen. I'm also going to read it aloud. The number is 213-375-8385. This is our self-healer soundboard voicemail. So call, leave your name, location, and your question for chapter five, and we will hear from you next week. 